Good morning, church. Happy Sabbath. It's awesome to be here. I've heard a lot about this church and I've, I've wanted to get here for ages. And so to come and share the word with you, I'm really excited. Um, it's a real blessing to be here with you this morning. Hey, would you bow your heads as we just um, get into the word? I'm just going to pray over it. Father God, thank you so much that we can come here on your Sabbath day and spend time and worship you. Lord, I just want to ask that the words that I now speak, they're not my own, but they are yours. We thank you, Lord, so much. We love you. Thank you for dying on the cross in your loving name. Amen. Today, we're going to explore the story of Naaman. And we're going to look specifically at the narrative of the story that shows us a picture of how we should be approaching and how we should be putting expectations on the God that we serve. I want to start. Let's open our Bibles. If you come with me, we're going to start um, in 2 Kings. And this is where this story that we're going to dive into today is 2 Kings chapter 5 and we're going to go verses 1 to 19. So 2 Kings chapter 5 verses 5 to 1 to 19. If you've got the World Changes Bible it's page 305. We're going to start verse 1 we're going to read the whole way through. We're going to unpack this, this passage. So verse 1 of chapter 5 in 2 Kings. The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying gifts of 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my sermon Naaman and I want you to heal him of this leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, This man sends me a leper to heal. Am I God that I can give life and take it away? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, and he waited at the door of Elisha's house. But when Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message, Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana and the Farpar better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in rage. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey when he says simply, go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River 
and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him, and his skin became as healthy as the skin of his young child, and he was healed. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, All right, but please allow me to take two lot to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I'll take it back home from me. From now on I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master the king goes into the temple of the god Rimon to worship there and he leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow too. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. I just want to slow it down a bit. It's a lot to take in at first. I want to focus on the two main characters in this story. The two main characters are Elisha and Naaman. Sure, we have other characters in this story, but they're either supporting cast or they're passive characters. And so I want to look at the narrative that plays out between Elisha and Naaman. But more importantly, I want to look at the underlying tone of this, that is the narrative that's playing out between Naaman and Elisha's God. Who was Naaman? Naaman was the commander of the king of the army for the king of Aram. We learn that in verse 1 of chapter 5. To be a commander of such a successful army, you have to be a valiant and fearsome warrior. He's probably like 6'5", he's built, he's a big guy. You just watch him and you go, no, I want to go the other way, I don't want to fight him. He would have been a master tactician. To be a successful general of an army, commander of an army, you're not going to be an idiot. You're going to be able to understand how to command your troops. He's destroyed nations after nations around him. And you don't do that if you're not good at tactics. We also know that he's incredibly loyal to his king, loyal to a fault. When he found out that there was a prophet that could heal him in, the, in Israel, instead of going, he's, you know, he's number two or three in his kingdom, instead of just hopping on his horse and riding to Israel, he goes to the king and he asks, King, can I go? Please let me go. We also find at that point that he's a respected man. Because not only does the king go, yes, absolutely go, he opens up his storehouses, his treasury rooms, says, take gold, take silver, take clothes, and lets, writes him a letter of recommendation. He would have been affluent in his community. He would have been rich. I mean, the king's not just going to open his storehouse for someone who's poor. And he's respected. We know that he was a pagan that worshipped the gods, and these gods that he worshipped had handed him many victories, or so that's what he believed. Every time he went out to victory, out to battle, he came home with a victory. And he believed that was because of the gods he worshipped. We also know that he's got leprosy. Leprosy is a death sentence. That's the end. His whole life, Naaman has been in command of everything. He's got the command of his household. He's got command of the biggest army, the most feared army in the known world. He's got command over his life. And now he's been given a, a death sentence that he has no control over. All of a sudden, 
All the control that he thought he had over his life and the things around him is gone. He has no control. And he realized he couldn't do it by himself anymore. And what made him realize that was this little slave girl. Let's talk about Elisha. Who was Elisha? Elisha was the prophet of God to Israel. He would have seen firsthand the destruction that Nahum caused, not only to the nations around him, but to the nation of Israel. He knew exactly who Naaman was, and he wasn't someone you wanted to mess around with. We know that Elijah was also loyal to a fault. He's a successor to Elijah, the prophet Elijah. Why God decided to call Elijah than Elisha, I think, shows us that he does have a sense of humor, because everybody gets confused, and I think it would have been much easier if Jeremy had been called as the second um, prophet. But it's Elijah than Elisha, and he was loyal to the, the very end. We, we find in the Bible that when Elisha is going to, he's finished his ministry and he's going to be taken up to heaven. Um, and that's another story in itself. Elijah tells Elisha, no, you must stay here now. I have to go on by myself. And Elisha doesn't have a bar of it. He says, no, Elijah, I'm coming with you. And they have this argument and eventually Elisha wins. And he gets to go to the very end when he sees Elisha be taken up to heaven. And, and the interesting thing is, Elisha asked God, well, Elijah, and that asked God, for a double portion of the authority and the blessings that he gave to Elijah. And we see that in a really simple way. Not only was he the prophet, but he, Elijah performed seven miracles in Israel. Elisha performed 14, exactly double, exactly what he asked of God. And I want to tell you two stories just to explain what sort of person Elisha is. And the first one is about a, a widow. This widow had hit rock bottom. Her husband had died and she had nothing and she was up to her teeth in debt and her creditors were knocking on her door and she had nothing to pay with them. And so Elisha comes through this town and she pours out her heart to Elisha. Elisha I have so much debt, I can't pay it. The only valuable I have in my house is a jar of oil. And if I don't pay these creditors really soon, they've told me that they're going to come and take my two sons. And then my debt will be gone. I don't want to lose my two sons. I can't lose them because then I'm nothing. Once I've lost my son, I'm a widow with no sons. And I don't want to send them into slavery. And so Elisha does the most incredible thing. She turns, he turns to her and goes, go get every single empty oil jar you can find. Not just in your house, but send your sons out, go to all your neighbors and get every single empty oil jar. I can imagine she looked at him and went, why? They're worthless. They're these little you know, pottery, like, they're not worth a thing. But he says, no, just go get them. And she goes and gets to all the neighbors and gets every single one she can find. And she, you can imagine walking into a house that the, the floor is covered in them with little paths so you can walk around. There's just oil jars everywhere. And Elisha says to her, right, now you've got all the jars. Get your jar of oil and start pouring into the other ones. But Elisha, I just have the one jar of oil. What's the point of transferring it? One, Just do it. Just do it. And so she does. She goes, grabs her jar of oil and she starts to pour and it doesn't run out. He just keeps pouring and pouring until every single jar, empty jar, is full of oil. Oil was worth a lot. And so she was then able to take these empty jars 
back to her neighbors that she took them off and sell back as full jars of oil. And it made her enough money that she could get out of debt. She no longer could pay, she could now pay back her creditors and no longer did she have to lose her sons. She could have a life again. The second story I want to tell you is probably the most incredible miracle that you can perform. That's bringing someone back to life. And so Elisha um, is traveling through Schumann. And as he's, as he's going through, a woman comes out and tries to convince him to come in and just eat and rest because he's had a long day. And at first he's reluctant, but she convinces him to come in and he eats and he rests and then he goes on his way. And anyway, this woman, after he leaves, goes to her husband and goes, he does so much for us. What can we do for him? And so the thing that came to their mind was, let's build an extra house, an extra room rather. And so, as you know, anybody does for a person they've only met once or twice, they just build an extra room on the top of their house so that next time he comes through, he has somewhere to stay. And they put a bed and a lamp and a desk and a chair in there and make it nice and homey for him. And so the next time Elijah comes through the area, they say, no, come and stay the night. Get rested, eat with us, stay with us, and then go on your way. And so he does because these couple have created this extra room just for him. And of course, as you would be, or I hope you would be, you're blown away by this generosity. Elisha can't believe it. He didn't ask for it. He didn't actually even want it, really. But now it's been given to him. He's just blown away by this generosity. And so he, has to, he goes and talks to his servant and he says, what can we do for this family? And he sends a servant to this family and says, what can I do for you? Can I go and speak to the king on your behalf or the commander of the army of Israel? What can I do for you? You've done so much for me. And of course, the lady goes, no, no, I don't want anything. And so the servant comes back with this message and they start to put their brains together to work out what they can do for this couple that have been so generous to them. And, and the servant goes, well, Elisha, you know, she doesn't have a son. And her husband's getting fairly old. And so Elisha goes, fantastic idea, go bring her to me. And so the servant brings the woman to him and he says, this time next year, you're going to have a baby boy. And of course she goes, no, don't play with no, that's not fair. You can't get my hopes up. And he goes, no, I'm serious. This time next year, you're going to have a baby boy. And of course, a year later, as she walks, as he comes back through the region, this family have a baby boy and they're ecstatic. They're over the moon because having a son, that's the pinnacle. Having a son is where it makes or breaks you. And so the story, you know, we, we don't get the middle part, but it comes to a, quite a few years down the track and the boy is old enough to be out in the field helping his father harvest. And it's a really hot day. The sun's beating down on the backs of the workers and, you know, the son starts, starts to get a bit of a headache, but he, he ignores it, as any good young boy does, just keeps working. And then he starts to get a bit dizzy, but, of course, he ignores that too. And it gets to the point where he collapses in the field. And the father runs over to him, picks him up, and takes him inside to his mother. And, of course, she does everything she can. She puts the cold, the cold um, cloth over his head. She does everything she knows possible to help her son, but it's not enough, and he passes away. She gets angry at God. God, why did you give me this son? 
just to take him away again. That's not fair. Why would you give him to me at all if you're just going to take him away? And so she sends this messenger to Elisha with this message of, Elisha, you've stitched me up. I wanted a son. You gave him to me and now he's dead. Why would you do that? And so Elisha immediately starts his journey out to this couple's house. And when he gets there, he walks up to the room that had been built for him and they'd placed the son in there. And he goes in there and he starts to pray. And he lays face down on this child and starts to breathe into his mouth and keeps to pray. And then the boy starts to get a color back in his cheeks. And the Bible tells us he sits up and he sneezes seven times and he's alive and he's fine. And again, the family are ecstatic. This is Elisha, prophet of God, who just wants to help the nation of Israel. But not just that, he wants to show the power of the created God to Israel. And he does that through these miracles, but he always gives credit to God and he always does it to help others. In verse 2 of chapter 5, we meet the slave girl. I want to I talk about the slave girl for a moment. Because in verse 2 it says, At this time our main raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. Verse 3, One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman sees some truth in this. Why? Why did he trust this slave girl? We don't know. But the faith that this slave girl had is not something that I understand. Here she was in Israel, minding her own business, and raiders from this land had come in, taken her from her family, taken her from her friends, taken her from her home, and taken her into a foreign land, into a new family, into a new language, into a new culture. And yet she can stand in that new culture and say, if you go home, there's a prophet there that will heal him. What are her expectations of God? Why does she believe that the prophet of God can save Naaman, but can't save her from enslavement in a foreign land? I think it shows the loyalty of the slave girl. But it also shows the respect and the sort of person that Naaman is. Because if he was a horrible person, do you really think that a slave girl from another country would do anything to save him? I think it speaks the most to the importance of a strong relationship with God. Because no matter what is going on, even if you've been enslaved in a foreign land, you can still believe that the God we serve is powerful. Verse 4 to 6. Let's read that again. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter of the king of Israel said, when this, With this letter I present my servant Naaman, and I want you to heal him of his leprosy. 
Even the king was willing to trust what the slave girl had said. And I think that shows how much Naaman was valued by his king, that he was willing to just go on the word of a slave girl from a foreigner. For all we know, they could have been sending them into an ambush. But he trusted what the slave girl had to say. He's willing to try and talk to a king that he's already defeated. And with that, he also sends a huge amount of money. Verse 7, it says, When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, This man sends me a leper to heal. Am I God that I can take and give life? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. This shows us a king that is scared. Because when the king of Israel has named him stand before him, a guy that's defeated him already, he's then told that I have leprosy and I've come to you to heal it. And he knows that no matter what answer he gives, it's going to end up in war. Because if he says, yes, Naaman, I'll heal you, well, he can't heal him. He's just another person. And Naaman then goes, great, so heal me. And nothing happens. Naaman gets angry, gets in his chariot, turns around, goes back to his nation, gets his whole army and comes back and wipes them all out. If he says, no, Naaman, I'm not going to heal you, Naaman gets angry, hops in his chariot, goes back to his nation, comes back with his whole army and wipes them all out. So no matter what answer the king gives, he knows it's going to end up in something really bad. And he's not willing to take that risk. Verse 8. But Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay. He sent this message to him, Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. Elisha's one up to the king. The king doesn't believe in God. And the king is really, really quite sick of Elisha. Because what does Elisha do? The role of the prophet often is to rebuke the king. And every time the king does something that Elisha doesn't agree with, Elisha's coming and rebuking him and he's so annoying and he just wants him to stop. And this one time that somebody from another nation comes to him, he can't do anything. Elisha's like, what are you doing? Why are you up? Just send him to me. And you know what? When, he send, when you send him to me, everybody's going to know about me. Everybody's going to know that there's a God in Israel and that there's a prophet of God in Israel. And the king is just... He's so annoyed because Elisha, he's one up to him. Verse 9 and 10. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message, Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. He really insults Naaman at this point. Because he's, he's second or third in his country, in his nation. He, he's used to going everywhere and anywhere and everyone just bowing down to him. If he says something, four people jump to their feet to go and fulfill his wishes. And he's just gone to the king and the king is, you know, he's shown him the proper respect. And he goes to this humble little house to this prophet who apparently is going to heal him. And he doesn't even get a welcoming party. He has to go all the way to the front door, knock on the door, and Elisha doesn't even open it. He sends a messenger down. He's upstairs having a bath. And Naaman is at the door with this messenger. 
He's not even greeted by the person himself. And then he says, oh, yeah, sorry, I can't hear you here. You've got to go to our dirty little river, the Jordan. I want you to wash in that seven times. Naaman had never, ever had to deal with that sort of rudeness before. So what were Naaman's expectations? Let's look at this. Verse 11. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hands over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Verse 12. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abner and the Farpar, better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in rage. His expectations were not met. His expectations were of this grand ceremony where he would be just instantly healed, but it's not the case. Verse 13, but his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So shouldn't you certainly obey him when he simply says, go and wash and be cured? Verse 14, so Naaman went down into the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child and he was healed. I think again, this shows us the character of Naaman. Other translations say that the servants, the officers go up to him and go, my father, if it was something really hard, wouldn't have you done it? What sort of officers are willing to go and rebuke their commanding officer, call them my father, if he's not a person of integrity, respect, and just a good down-to-earth guy? Because if he wasn't, if somebody went up and said, no, you should be doing this instead of this, he'd go turn around and chop the head off. But obviously he has made a rapport with his officers. That means when he's doing something silly, when he's doing something dumb, the officers can call him out and rebuke him. Verse um, 14, when he humbles himself, he has to do the menial task of washing. We all have a shower in the morning or the evening. It's not a glamorous occasion. We do it because we don't want to stink. He does it because he's going to be healed, but it's just washing. It's like in the river, in a dirty little creek compared to his rivers. Why would he do that? Why? In front of his men? It's just ridiculous. He's the commander of the army. No, why would I do that? But he has to humble himself. And it shows that even the soldiers under Naaman had faith in the message that the little girl, the little slave girl had delivered. It also shows how badly they wanted their master to be healthy. And to have enough standing to call Naaman out on his actions shows that the soldiers really, really respect Naaman. So he humbles himself and does as the prophet said. And in doing so, his pride is shattered. It breaks away. And not only does his skin become healthy, friends, but at that moment in that water, when his pride is shattered, he meets God. I just want to touch on verse 17. Uh, no, sorry, not yet. Verse 16 and 15. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. 
They stood before him and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. You see, if Elisha had gone out as Naaman had expected and gone out and called on the name of the Lord and waved his hands over him and healed him, the credit would have gone to Elisha. But by sending, not even him, by sending a messenger with a message to Naaman to go and do the washing, he sends it all away and there is no possible way that he can take the credit for what is done. The only thing, the only one that can be given credit is God. Because he wasn't there at the Jordan River. There was just the waters of the river. That doesn't cure leprosy, but God does. And so when Naaman comes back to give him the 750 pounds of silver and the gold and the clothes, Elisha says, why? I can't take it. I didn't do anything. It was your actions and the actions of God that healed you. And verse 17, it it confused me a lot when I first read it. The Naaman said, all right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. Okay, do you just normally go to another country and bring back as much soil as you can carry? But we find out that the culture of the day to to give a offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to a God of another nation has to be done on their soil. And so by digging up this soil, he's actually taking back part of Israel so when he goes home, he can build an altar and burn sacrifices and give offerings to the God of Israel. Friends, have you ever felt that your prayer was unanswered? Have you ever had a prayer that wasn't answered in the way that you wanted it to be? Whenever we make a request of God, we impose expectations of how we think it needs to turn out. I don't know about you, but personally, I've been incredibly disappointed over and over when a prayer hasn't been answered the way that I wanted it to be. Naaman went to Israel with preconceived expectations of what he hoped was going to happen. Elisha was going to come out of the house, call on his God, lay hands upon him, and he would be healed. Instead, he didn't even get met by the prophet. But rather, the servant who tells him to go and wash in a puny dirty river for Naaman to be completely healed he had to be humbled for Naaman to be completely healed he had to lower himself to the level of everybody else if Elisha had simply walked out and healed healed him Naaman would have turned around gone back to his country with his pride intact however he had to lower himself to doing the menial task of washing in the river on an instruction of a man he'd never met. When he washed in the Jordan, he met God. It was the moment when his expectations were destroyed, his pride was shattered, and he was no longer acting as Naaman, the commander of the armies of Aram, but rather as Naaman, the sick leper who was going to die. Friends, how often have we, just as Naaman, been disappointed because God didn't live up to our expectations? And because of that, we turn in rage or disappointment and walk away. Not because of what God has done, but because of what we thought God should have done. 
Let's have the faith of the small girl. She'd been taken away from her family, away from her friends, away from her home. She was first forced to work for the commander who ordered the raid. I can imagine that she prayed every day, God, please come and save me. Please send someone to rescue me from my oppressors. Yet she never was. But she had such faith and such a relationship with God that she trusted him to do what was needed. She trusted him to look at the bigger picture. She had every reason to walk away from God. Her God hadn't been able to save her from the gods of Aram. But she stayed true to her trust in God. And because of her actions, she brought at least one man, if not a whole family or a whole group of people to Christ. Folks, I'm not suggesting even for a moment that we stop asking God for incredible things in our lives. God is capable of granting every wish and command. In fact, in Matthew 7, 7, it tells us we are to ask and we shall receive. However, friends, I want to encourage you, and I want to encourage all of us today, that we need to go and wash in the Jordan. Let's keep asking God for our needs because he will supply But let's ask from a place of humility and faith. Let's ask God for his will to be done. As I finish, I want to touch on one last story. Come with me to Matthew 26. We're going to read verse 39. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. It's page 797 in the White Bibles. It says... He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Friends, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying to God because he is distraught. He knows that the Roman soldier is about to come and take him to be crucified. He knows the end is near. And he does not want it to happen. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to go through the pain. And so he prays, my father, if it is at all possible, let me do something else. Don't make me die. But not as I want, as what you want. Was it the right request of God at that moment to ask someone else to take his place? Was it right request for him to no longer have to go through with dying? No, it wasn't. But because Jesus was face down at the feet of God, saying, not as I will, but as you will, he couldn't be disappointed. Friends, for Naaman, the feet of God was the River Jordan. And when he was there, face down, begging to be healed, he was a broken man. That's when he met God. That's where his pride was washed away. That's where his faith was made. Why? Because he no longer had expectations of how God was going to change his life. He just let God change his life. So friends, let's wash in the Jordan. Let's come to the feet of God, face down our pride, washed away, with faith that no matter what we're asking, our lives will be changed according to his will, not our own. And in that moment, no longer will we be able to be disappointed when our plans don't come to fruition Because we're washing in the Jordan, waiting for God to give us his answer. And when we are face down at the feet of God, friends, there's no better place. There's no more beautiful place.
because our expectations, our pride have been washed away and replaced with a faith in the knowledge that God will put us where we need to be. So friends, let's go. Let's go wash in the River Jordan. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you that we can come together and learn more about you. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God that died on the cross for us, even though you didn't want to in the dying hours. But you did it because you love us so very much. We thank you, Lord, for today. In your loving name, amen.